What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Hey, Miss Patricia said that your bones can break if I, like, tap them. Is that true? Yes. Uh, so what's your superpower? Your, your mind? What's mine? James McAvoy with Samuel L. Jackson in Glass, the new film from writer, director, and divisive auteur M. Night Shyamalan. Glass is the conclusion of a trilogy that began back in 2000 with Shyamalan's Unbreakable. Not to tip my hand here, Josh, but does finding Glass anything less than profoundly dumb require a superpower? Guess that makes me super, Josh. I guess so. Also on the show, more Shyamalan. We reconsider the movie that put him on the cinematic map, 1999's The Sixth Sense, the first entry in our 9 from 99 series. All that and more. Super Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. 20 years ago this month, We'd still have little idea, Josh, that we were setting out on one of the great movie years of all time. In fact, as of the first weekend in February 1999, the movie year was looking like pretty much any other movie year. Varsity Blues, She's All That with Freddie Prince Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook, and Payback with Mel Gibson topping the box office. I have fond memories of She's All That. Do you? Payback. Payback was a little rough. For the 20th anniversary of 1999, we're going to reconsider nine iconic films that helped define the year. We're calling the series Nine from 99. And this week, we'll take a look at the first of those films, M. Night Shyamalan's breakthrough, The Sixth Sense. It was the number two overall film at the box office in 99, also nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture and Director. That's later in the show. First, it has been a long wayward journey for Shyamalan from The Sixth Sense to his new film, Glass. I've been something of a Shyamalanistan along the way. Well done. Yep. I'm, I'm the guy who liked Lady in the Water. Adam, not so much? No. No. So that means our first proper review of 2019 should be a fun one. The three of you have convinced yourselves you have extraordinary gifts like something out of a comic book. David Dunn. The only person to survive that train wreck all those years ago? What do you do? I'm in security. You think you have superpowers? It's a feeling. Vision. I have to touch them. You believe you are a protector. My name is Patricia. I have no question. There are two dozen identities. I'm Mary Reynolds. Por favor, senora. We almost got you, bro. That live in that body with you. The beast. It's coming any minute now for you guys. But what I am questioning is your belief that you are something more than human. And yet, it is true. I heard a podcast interview recently with Aaron Sorkin where he was asked for some quick screenwriting tips. He offered a story about the late, great William Goldman and his script for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. If you've seen it, and probably even if you haven't, you know the scene and the memorable line. Near the end, Butch and Sundance have been chased by a posse to the end of a cliff. They can fight or jump into the rocky waters below, very likely dying regardless of which option they choose. Butch wants to jump. Sundance is adamant about staying put and shooting his way out. Exasperated, Butch finally asks, What's the matter with you? Sundance replies, I can't swim. 
And maybe even better than Redford's line reading is the head nod he gives, at once sheepish and defiant, just before Newman bursts into laughter. The advice is meant to be practical. Goldman once said, The entire super posse chase, almost half an hour of screen time, was only writable for me because I knew the Sundance kid couldn't swim, something I'd read was true of a lot of Western figures of that period. Sorkin's bit of wisdom then, by way of Goldman, was to give your character a secret, something that only you and he or she knows until you're ready to reveal it. Now, I don't know whether M. Night Shyamalan ever consciously set out to employ Goldman's approach, though, for what it's worth, when Goldman passed last November, Shyamalan on Twitter cited him as an influence and called him one to always aspire to. But considering his filmography, has any writer-director ever ringed more from character secrets? We'll talk about The Sixth Sense later and hear the confession clip. For half the movie, Haley Joel Osment's Cole is sitting on a secret only he knows. Well, and all of us who saw the trailer 4,000 times. For almost the entire movie, Bruce Willis's Malcolm has a secret only Cole knows. The satisfying convergence of those revelations launched Shyamalan's career, and with his latest, he's up to his usual tricks. The final part of a trilogy almost 20 years in the making, Glass brings together the hero, Bruce Willis's overseer David Dunn from 2000's Unbreakable, the villain, James McAvoy's beasts and assorted personalities from 2016's Split, and the mastermind, M. Night or Samuel L. Jackson's Elijah Price slash Mr. Glass. Key supporting characters from the two prior films appear, including Anya Taylor-Joy as the Beast's lone surviving victim, Casey, Spencer Treat Clark as David's son, Joseph, and Charlene Woodard as Mrs. Price, plus a newcomer, Sarah Paulson's Dr. Ellie Staple, a psychiatrist determined to convince our troublemaking triumvirate that they are not, in fact, imbued with any superpowers. Josh, we hung out last weekend for a little bit, and although we didn't get into any details, you know my secret. I didn't much care for Glass. And I'll throw out a theory for you to confirm or debunk as delusional. Forget his predilection for big twists. My fear is that secrets have become Shyamalan's filmmaking kryptonite. They've ceased being a tool on his screenwriter's utility belt. Yes, I'm mixing Batman and Superman there. Deal with it. The means to explore deeper human truths, not just superhuman ones, and become the end itself. In other words, revealing his cleverness, the uncanny ability, yep, X-Men, to manipulate and surprise the meager minds of his viewers is where the director derives all of his thrills. Well, we could probably spend some time debating whether there's a distinction between secrets and twists. Sure. I think that's, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time defending Shyamalan, but I would not put his screenplays in Goldman territory. And that's probably because uh, Goldman is speaking there or developed something in the Butch and Sundance script that's more like a secret, whereas Shyamalan definitely deals more in twists. They, mm-hmm. they spin on secrets, character secrets, a lot of times, but it is that twist since the sixth sense that he's come to be known for. I would say your question, which is a fair one and a good one, really came into focus for me with The Village because I also do like The Village, but that was the moment where I realized the twist was the best thing about it. Mm. And the rest of the film had issues and it wasn't entertaining on its own. This is the one that's set in a 19th century community and we'll just leave it there they're Mm -hmm. terrorized by monsters in the woods and we find out um well actually we find out that there was dog tooth before dog tooth in a way you could argue (laughs) yeah i I loved where he went with the village but getting there wasn't as fun one of my defenses of glass which i think you can also make of the sixth sense having just rewatched it is that both movies could stand apart from the twist 
that we do get at the end, which maybe seems stranger to say of the sixth sense because that's all we think about, but that's a, we'll get into it. That's a really good film on its own before the rugs pulled out from under us. Glass, for me, the twist, which we'll get into in spoiler talk, um, I could leave or take. I'm not angry about it. Like I know some viewers are, I don't think it elevates the film into something into a a grander territory Mm -hmm. or takes it into a really unique place. Like happens with the village. Um, because I think what comes before I enjoyed a lot, a lot more than I thought I would. I really liked being back in this non DC non MCU world that Shyamalan has carved out for himself since unbreakable. I have liked MCU films better than glass and better than unbreakable. So it's not a, you know, an overall judgment comparison, but I really enjoyed being back in this world where I didn't know where the characters were going to go. I had a little bit of background thanks to split and thanks to unbreakable. But other than that, I didn't have decades of lore that were weighing upon me and were weighing upon the movie. And that enabled Chamelan to do something that these other universes can't do, which is give me the experience of opening a brand new comic book for the first time and not knowing what I'm going to get. And we can probably get into how comic booky is this and, mm-hmm. and where does it violate comic book principles? I'm not enough of an expert to, you know, to make judgment on all those claims, but it did remind me as someone who reads maybe five or six a year um, of that experience of here's new characters. I don't know. What's going to happen to them? What is this world like? And I enjoyed Glass quite a bit on that level. Hmm. I wish I did. And you mentioned the ending and whether or not it's truly a twist. Is it a satisfying twist? Is it one that makes you angry? I just found everything about the way the movie concludes unsatisfying. And we will get into that specifically when we talk about spoilers. You did just recently rewatch Unbreakable. And I saw it maybe a year ago. I've touched on it recently here on the show that it just came on one night and I got sucked into it. And I realized just how good a film it is. And of course, I did see Split when it came out, though I don't think it got a full review here on the show. And when you contextualize all three of these movies, the thing that really, for me, makes Unbreakable so good, Josh, is that it understood and it explored the tropes of superheroes and comic books without actually being about superheroes or comic books. Those myths and our relationship to them were all a vehicle to explore some very real everyday experiences. David, the Bruce Willis character, is unfulfilled. He's unsatisfied as a person before the life-altering event that forces him to address questions about his identity that he is ignored or suppressed. Elijah, Samuel L. Jackson's character, has a line when he confronts him and they meet later in the film. He says, you know what the scariest thing is to not know your place in this world, to not know why you're here. That's an awful feeling. You don't have to think you might have superpowers to have that very same fear, not knowing your purpose, not knowing your place. That's an awful feeling for all of us. It's a fundamental part of the human condition. He later calls it that sadness, and that sadness affects who David is as a husband and father, as a person who engages or doesn't engage with the world. That, to me, is what Unbreakable was about, and about that character having to repair or maybe just establish for the first time those connections. And then I also like the way his crisis intersects ultimately with Elijah's up until that terrible postscript that we get at the end of the film. It all really worked for me. And that focus on the humanity of it is why we get scenes like the one in Unbreakable at the breakfast table. 
that incredible silent moment of acknowledgement between father and son, the confirmation of the son's belief in his dad and the father coming to terms with who he really is. And I say all this, Josh, because there isn't a single moment in glass for me that felt half as real and powerful as that one, despite some of those same characters and elements being key parts of this story, which is why actually it felt so cheap and insulting to me when part of that scene is replayed for us in glass. And what's disappointing isn't that Shyamalan chose not to give us Unbreakable 2. It's that what began so successfully with Unbreakable has devolved into such thoroughly unsatisfying pulp that I think is just really void of any real humanity. And that is ironic when you consider the message that Shyamalan seems to foist on us at the end of the film, which again, we'll get to, but that's the disappointment. He's lost that connection, that human material, and he's made it all about these supposed thrills. There's no doubt Unbreakable is the better film, and, and I love it for that very reason. It's this superhero origin story that's, you know, also, it's an origin story as emotional awakening. Those two things mm -hmm. are paired together. That That's what makes that movie special and so good. Absolutely. Now, is there an example of anything like that in Glass? Um, pulp is the right word. We This universe has gotten more comic booky as it's unfolded, um, and it's taken on the contours, especially glass, of an actual comic book narrative. So it's definitely different. Um, I would acknowledge that. I don't see that so much as a loss. I didn't want Unbreakable 2 either. And maybe the touches there of humanity are smaller. They're not as intricately woven in. One thematic motif that I did appreciate in Glass is the emphasis on touch that is given. And this is where the Anya Taylor-Joy character comes in. Um, it, she, having seen one of the Beast's personality, his original personality, um, the one that is suffering from all of this disorder, she's connected with him in Split. And there's a moment where she reaches out and touches McAvoy's character and tries to make that connection, tries to find that humanity that you're talking about, getting to the root of the person he was underneath all of these fantastic things. What Split was, and, and Split, for the record, I like the least of the three, but it was an origin story for a supervillain, right? Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, exploring how this supervillain, like so many villains in comic books, is born out of pain. And, and I do think that Glass makes a gesture there towards reconnecting with his humanity and the there's an irony to this where if Mr. Glass himself, Samuel L. Jackson, is touched, it causes pain mm -hmm. to him. And he's he's the supervillain in this instance, in Glass. And so, again, it's not as intricate, it's not as subtle as it is in Unbreakable, but I think it's there in the way you might find that sort of motif actually in a comic book. Glass is becoming much more in, in form. We're almost inside there's a hermetic sense to glass whereas unbreakable was more in the real world mm -hmm. right we can recognize this there, there's this sealed sense to glass that we're inside a comic book panel almost and so the emotional beats that are going to be hit are hit similarly as they might be if you're reading a comic listen to me joseph your father is making great progress i'm very hopeful for him did you know the first superman couldn't even fly and Metropolis is actually New York City. And what about all the coincidences in what I was reading? Comic books are an obsession. Have you ever been to a comic book convention? They sell teen TV shows there. They are selling things. 
Your friends and family members have lost their perspective. Well, whether you think of it as comic book material or, as we've used the word a couple of times, just pulp, I would be more on board with that, I think, if Shyamalan here exhibited any kind of sense of humor whatsoever. And it's really not... Well, that's always been a weak spot. ...any moment of this film. And it is a weak spot, even though having rewatched The Sixth Sense, obviously recently, and Unbreakable a year ago, there are subtle little flashes of humor that are sprinkled throughout both of those movies. And I can't remember a single instance of it here. There's maybe some unintentional humor that we might get to, but nothing intentional, unfortunately. And I do think there is, for me, something a little bit lurid about the way Shyamalan feasts on the past traumas of his characters. It's a problem I had with Split as well. There's this suggestion where almost they have a gift. They've been imbued with some gift because of their suffering. And I think about the scene, which I guess is a deleted scene from the original Unbreakable that we see in this film, one where the young Elijah is at a carnival and he gets on a ride that's whipping him around. My question, Josh, is what ultimately is the purpose for that scene beyond inflicting on the audience an overwhelming sense of dread at the unspeakable pain a young boy is going to suffer and that we are going to have to sit through and witness? Does it really inform his character in any way, or does Shyamalan just kind of love the dread and the horror of it all? I feel like there's a lot of that in this film. Actually, that's an example I should have given to to your question of where's the humanity. That's why that scene is there, is to remind us, as we see Glass coming into his own as this supervillain, where he's going to be the puppeteer of both the Overseer and the Beast, he's going to control both of them, we might be willing to write him off as just the bad guy by reminding us of that, bringing it back Mm. to his childhood when he was a kid dealing with this, it returns to that superhero, supervillain trope of anger being born out of suffering you had as a kid. Now, what I will grant you- I think that's why his mother's there, though, too. That's where I saw her serving that function in the film. I didn't need why she returns. Yeah, exactly. I didn't need that scene so much. Well, it's a a really harrowing scene. It is. Uh, And and I think effective. I I do want to acknowledge something in having just watched Split for the first time the last few weeks and rewatched Unbreakable. Something strange about Shyamalan that I- I don't care for too much. And it touches to this lurid sensibility you're talking about. I feel like he uses elements like child abuse, mm-hmm. um, sexual trauma mm-hmm. too lightly. And, and by that, I mean, it's not exploitation because exploitation filmmakers know what they're dealing with. They, they can, they can kind of sense it and they know its power. I almost feel like with him, this goes back to screenplay writing. He knows that it could be a plot point or a beat. And so he drops it in there, yeah. but he doesn't fully understand its power as something anyone in the audience might've lived through. And so I will grant you now for me, this is why split is my least favorite. I think it's mostly a problem in split. Um, but there are elements in class too. So I'll grant mm. you that. Yeah. Maybe I felt like it wasn't as pronounced in split because I felt a little bit more of that humanity in the struggle of James McAvoy's character. And here I feel it's all about the stunt of the performance. And I want to talk about that a little bit. How do you feel overall about what McAvoy is doing? Because there's no doubt he's got acting chops. I've always loved him as an actor. And this movie certainly is a showcase. Oh my goodness. Does it, does it serve the character? Does it serve what Shyamalan's after? No, I don't, I don't, for me, and this is going to very much depend on how you feel about big performances. And I'm on record with being skeptical of them. I admire the craft. I admire the ability, the shifting from one personality to the next in the instant 
is indeed impressive, but it also takes me at least out of every scene where that happens. So that as well was a reservation I had about split here. It didn't bother me quite as much, maybe because I knew what I was going to get and I was willing to look past it. But I think McAvoy, there's also a certain humanity he's digging into in the beast. Yeah. When we start to get to a twist and we realize that he's being manipulated as well. So this is another character, all three of them have genuine pain we can understand. And this is a character who we've watched try to control that pain, fail. It's turned him into this monster. And here we see him, thanks to Mr. Glass, sinking deeper into that monstrosity. Mm -hmm. There's something terrifying about that. And there's something a very moving is, is the wrong word, uh, but there's, there's something sad and lamentable about it too. And I think he's scarier here. I I think when he fully unleashes Mm -hmm. or glass really unleashes uh, this ferocity, um, he's, he's a really terrifying figure in a way that's different from sort of the creepy serial killer guy. Mm -hmm. He was in split. Yeah. To echo something you said just a short time ago, though, there are certainly elements of pain coming through in each one of these characters, but are they being exploited in a way by Shyamalan for plot points? Or is it something he's genuinely interested in and willing to explore? That's my problem, I guess, with the film. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with McAvoy's performance. And I'm not sure that you're disagreeing with me on that. What's wrong with how it serves the film is what's largely wrong for me with the entire film, which is Shyamalan loves the trick. Think about how many times we get that hypno light flash that sparks Kevin to change instantly. Mm -hmm. It happens before our eyes for no good reason. I'm telling you like 17 times in this film, it's only there because I think Shyamalan is so giddy about pulling off that little stunt. And yes, it mostly glorifies McAvoy's acting chops that he can do that so swiftly, but also I think it glorifies Shyamalan as the mastermind who wrote and conceived that character and giving him the vehicle to do it. But it's kind of a neat conceit because each of these villains, or in the case of the overseer, you know, a hero, but he's imprisoned here by Paulson's doctor. They have a weakness that's going to have to be exploited to keep them contained. And so to figure out that this is a way to keep the beast contained, I mean, it, it's effective as a cinematic device. Yeah. It's, it's Until something... you become hyper aware of it as a device. So, so you're saying he overuses yes, it. Yes, I okay. am saying that. All right. I can, I can see that, but it's also related to something that I did like about Glass, that he does a lot. It's not I'm not going to say it's a trick. Um, it's misdirection. And I love as a filmmaker, as a director, we can talk about clunky screenplays. I agree. We he, will. He has that element to it. But as a director, I love that he's willing to employ misdirection, especially when he's dealing in something like the superhero genre. So take, for example, I mentioned you know the weaknesses they each have. So the overseer, David Dunn, he waters his weakness. So Paulson has his chamber outfitted with all these nozzles. If he gets confrontational, they just douse him with water. Okay. The first time we see that and we think it's going to happen, Shyamalan cuts away to the tank outside of the building and just lets us sit on the tank as we hear the water gurgling and we understand what's happening. And we want to see, we expect to see all the action and we don't. Instead, he cuts back later and we just see that done. A rare moment wet. of restraint. Okay, no, You're right. that's right. not true at all. It's not a rare moment. There's a lot of misdirection. I'll give you another one. It's a great comic book visual when Glass and the Beast are escaping through the tunnels at this point. And I, I, it's really kind of a crackling idea to have Glass 
manipulate the beast and be able to talk him into one personality over the other to get him to do what he wants. If you say so. I, I thought that was a pretty, <laughs> another cool conceit he came okay. up with and they're making their escape. The security guards are coming. And instead of showing us, there's a lot of misdirection with the beast in general. Yeah. That's very effective. Yeah. Instead of showing us the attack, mm-hmm. the camera's focused on mm-hmm. Samuel Jackson rolling forward, obscuring, obscuring the frame the frame so that we can't see the ferocity going on in the background, which makes it all the more terrifying. So there are a number of instances like that where we get, as a matter of fact, I want to cite um, a, a listener who wrote about glass on my Facebook page, uh, Ethan McElhinney, because his comment really spoke to this. He said, I was thinking about your, so my disdain for the boom punches of modern superhero movies while watching glass. I, I call those the punch plosions. Despite being super powered, the fights between Willis and McAvoy still managed to feel infinitely more tangible than anything in the MCU, Ethan says. Even more interesting is how Shyamalan almost always seems to undercut the fights to be as underwhelming as possible because this isn't following the modern superhero movie formula. I think Ethan is right. I think there are a lot of scenes that go that way where we would expect this big showdown full of effects, Mm -hmm. um, full of just, it's, it's again, it's not that one is better than the other. It's that we're establishing an original aesthetic here. And I appreciated that. Okay. But just because it is making that choice to maybe subvert our expectations to an extent or go against what the current mode is for these types of films, the reality is that that doesn't inherently make the way he depicts the climax of this film in any way something that's enjoyable to watch. And that's my problem with it. I think I would be a lot more invested in those types of examples, those kind of nice little subtle camera movements and the framing and that restraint is something I would respond to more if I wasn't so overwhelmed by the general clunkiness otherwise. And I think about Shyamalan, we're going to get into when I think he was crafting a better film with The Sixth Sense. Even if you didn't like all the twists or you didn't like just really the ideas behind his films, I think there was this sense of him as a filmmaker who really knew how to provide thrills and create suspense. There were comparisons, maybe they were coming from him, but there were comparisons to Spielberg early in his career because of that ability. And here we get a handful of scenes like the one, for example, with one of the attendants at the hospital they're all imprisoned at who shows up late for his shift. And the plot, of course, needs him to be late for his shift. And it's as if in the screenplay Shyamalan wrote insert movie distraction moment here. And then he ran out of time to actually write a scene that wasn't unintentionally hilarious. There's a revelation. We may talk about this at the very end of the film that comes via a line of dialogue from some random person that's totally absurd. And there's a moment in the climax that I do think is really silly, and this isn't a spoiler, but David, Bruce Willis's character, is so focused on saving some people that he spends like two minutes bending a steel bar, even though while he's doing that, we know that another couple of people are being ripped to shreds behind him. But, you know, he's really got to get that steel bar. He can't bar. get them all at the once. The plot needs him to really <laughs> get that steel bar. It's just clear to me that he really doesn't know how to handle all of these characters narratively, but especially when it comes to the actual staging of this finale, there's so 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 much going on. Let me, just cause I want to make sure I'm clear. You've referenced the climax or the finale. Are you talking about the confrontation outside of the hospital? I I, I, I see that as the finale of the film. And I just think that the camera conveniently forgets where certain characters are in the scene rather than Shyamalan coming up with believable stuff 
for those characters to do or believable places for them to be. They don't really have any function until he needs them to have a function. But I'm aware as a viewer of their presence in that scene the entire time. Certain characters who are going to play a major role in events that are going to follow this big climax, they're sidelined and really marginalized in a way, again, until he needs them to come to the fore. And that for me is where I started to completely tune out what he was going for. Yeah, it's interesting. That sequence you're talking about, I think, is another example of the comic book aesthetic coming into play a little bit where he's focusing on a panel at a time, what's going on in that panel. And, and, you know, you can make the argument, this isn't necessarily good filmmaking and it doesn't, it doesn't transfer, but for me it did. And it recreated that experience. So we we get the establishing shot of the, the yard, this front entrance where this conversation is taking place. So we know the lay of the land. So I have that in the back of my head. And I actually think the, the showdown, which is a wide angle shot, of Dunn and the Beast is, That's a is moment, pretty though. exciting and also, but lays that groundwork so that we do understand, okay, when things really start getting crazier, we may be focusing on this one area, mm-hmm. this one panel, but I understand that this other character is still over there. So for me, it, it didn't really cause confusion and it kind of heightened this overall aesthetic that I felt like I was experiencing. Okay. So obviously very different experiences with the movie Glass, M. Night Shyamalan's latest, which is out now in wide release. If you see it, agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. May I meet the beast? I hope for your sake that he likes you. That sounds like the bad guys teaming up. A lot of people are going to die. Don't do this. Are you ready? We do potentially have more to say about Glass, though. Josh, do you want to get into some spoilers? spoilers? Yeah, I I think we kind of have to. I think we have to (laughs) because I can't talk about my overall disappointment with the film without talking about how it all concludes. Did the ending, do you want to explain it a little bit, the very final moments of this film, did it work for you? Did it elevate the film or did it just not subtract from it? Yeah, as I was saying at the start, it didn't launch into this new greater level, but I don't have the issues with it that I've picked up. Um, Other people have had primary among them that the three main characters are killed. And I've heard a number of people say, and this particularly seems to bother people when it comes to David Dunn. That's who we've known the longest. He's the good guy, essentially the best guy, I guess, maybe out of the three. We've talked about the bits of humanity in each of them. Um, I understand that. And it's strange, even though I was really excited to see David Dunn back, this character again, because I just thought he was such a great creation. Um, And I loved seeing him. I love the fact that Spencer Treat Clark, as you mentioned, returns as his son. And Mm -hmm. they sort of run this vigilante superhero shop together. His son is the man in the chair, right? Great touch. It didn't bother me that he didn't make it out of this film. Yeah, me neither. I I don't need many more David Dunn adventures. So I guess that's the main reason I was like, okay, interesting, dramatic, like didn't expect that. Um, I don't think it makes this a brilliant film, but okay, I'm all right with that choice. Yeah, I was fine with that choice too. That's not where Shyamalan misstep for me, I suppose. And actually, why don't we hear from a listener? We got a voicemail from Josh Youngerman. He's in New York City and he found the very end of this film. It's a moment where we have the three characters who are kind of on the periphery. They're the ones who are essentially the only family that our three main characters have get together and they are at a train station 
which I suppose makes sense for this whole trilogy, right? And they witness the moment when a video goes viral, which is the video of this climax, which you liked and I did not. And it's the moment where Mr. Glass's ultimate dream is apparently realized, where he shows the world that there really are superheroes. And the expectation is that this is going to cause some kind of paradigm shift in humanity from here forward. Let's hear Josh. I basically think the first half is really, really good. And I think Shyamalan is on the top of his game as a, just a craftsman. Um, we really loved seeing Bruce Willis's character back. And I also um, thought that a lot of the, the stuff involving uh, James McAvoy's character was very interesting. I think he loses it in the second half, which becomes sort of an expository mess. But for me, uh, I did find the final shot of the film moving and I actually did tear up in the cinema, and for me, that redeemed it. And uh, I would recommend people check it out. Um, anyways, uh, cheers. So Josh Youngerman moved by that moment at the end. I was not moved at all. It sounds like maybe you weren't either, but that didn't lower the movie no, I, in your estimation, whereas it did for me. Yeah, I, I appreciate the support, Josh, greatly, because <laughs> overall, I think I need it. But that last moment, I do have a quibble with. And it has to do with characterization and motivation. If you go back to, it has to do with the humanity element you're talking about, Adam. Mm -hmm. If you go back to what these people are really going through and what matters to them, they would be first and foremost concerned with the immediate, fairly immediate loss of these people that they loved in one way or another, maybe in the Anya Taylor-Joy character a little less, but there was an affinity there. And they would have no motivation to bond together over what you're saying, what the screenplay needs does not fit what these characters realistically would need. So I, I think for me, that last shot does not sell. Yeah, I, I think you could make the case if you wanted to defend it, that the realization of the truth of the people they're associated with would be validation in a way that would probably comfort them in that moment. For me, where it doesn't work at all is that it's very clear that at the end of this film, because Shyamalan makes it clear, he has a character say it, it's an origin story. He wants this, whether or not there's going to be another film, and I don't really think there is any material probably to mine for another movie. It's not literally an origin story, but it is more metaphorically in the sense that it's the beginning of the world realizing that there are extraordinary people that they may, in fact, the origin as I read what I think Shyamalan's up to here is they may, in fact, be extraordinary. All of us walking the earth, we shouldn't allow these external agencies or forces or our own fears limit us in any way. He wants that to be this kind of profound, powerful statement. And my only response sitting there watching those characters sit on the bench was, who cares? I mean, I just didn't feel it at all, Josh. The the two-bit kind of League of Shadows thing that's going on with Sarah Paulson's character. Yeah, we should probably uh, get that into that. That isn't remotely interesting, and I can't believe I'm even bringing this up. But I mentioned League of Shadows. You think about like Liam Neeson in the Batman movies, Raza Ghoul at least you know the stakes there. Like, we disagree with him just like Bruce Wayne does. We disagree with the motives, but we understand kind of what's driving their intentions. Yeah. Here, There's no sense of that here with her character in this wait, shadowy she, wait, she, society. She lectures her, she lectures her oh, own society, yeah, and you still don't get no, it? No, I it's don't. It's very clear. <laughs> I don't, actually. I get it. I get what the movie wants it to be, but it didn't actually connect with me at all. There's just really nothing compelling to the mystery of that group. That's what bugs me about it. And also, I'll say that Sarah Paulson, a really fine actress, and I think she's overall okay here, but I do think that Shyamalan, with his direction, 
and Paulson with her performance, they tip the hand with her character way too early. Oh, sure. She's got yeah, that you kind know of clinical up. menace that drips from most of her lines and those tight point of view close-ups when she's saying those menacing yeah. lines. It just tells you immediately that something ulterior is going on with her character. Yeah, that, it, that was obvious. It, it uh, didn't bother me. Okay, a, a couple things. So I think the, the whole, I'm, I read that differently, that it was an inspirational message where everyone is special in some way. Yeah, I, I read it. what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, I didn't read it that way. Okay. I, I read it as that there are people who are struggling because of the extraordinary gifts they have that are not recognized as extraordinary. Yeah, no, okay? I, I guess that's what I'm so, saying too. Not literally every person in the world, but oh, okay. you may not be aware of it at all. And yeah. now you or, need to more open your mind up to that but here, fact. But more interestingly, this goes back to the humanity thing, is that as a matter of fact, your weakness might be something special. That's been a through line. So in all of these characters, maybe not so much in, in David Dunn because um, his his strength is pretty much just a strength. I mean, anyone, it isn't really born out of suffering. He's interesting in that right. he's apart from the other two in that case. But the overall, the way I took it as this is supposed to be inspiring to those people who have these supernatural gifts mm-hmm. in some way, recognizing it's, it's the X-Men thing. You're not a freak. Okay, it's just through a little bit of different lens. The other thing, Agreed. which has to do with this this league that Sarah Paulson mm-hmm. runs, I like that idea. There's precedent, as you said, and yes, she overexplains things. There's a way too much overexplaining in this movie, but at least she makes it very clear that they're the normal people. They don't have anything besides their, I mean, their wealth. You get the sense, and their elitism, and their desperately clinging onto that because they know if people like Mr. Glass or even if people like Dunn who have good intentions uh, become known that they're going to lose their grip on power. Mm-hmm. I, that, that worked for me. Hmm. And I love that the dilute, the way they choose in this film to combat them. Here's another twist is not for a big battle that takes out New York city. It's to play mind games. It's to get these three people they found who have these powers and convince them yeah. that they're delusional. Give them Why? What, what, what's the line? Something about, um, because the, the world is overrun by comic books. Mm-hmm. So they're actually blaming the comic books for the delusions. I mean, in this MCU world that's overrun by comic books, I think that's kind of an, that's made, that was funny. That made me laugh. That's sure, a good matter joke. doesn't work, it does involve them trying to take them out. I mean, it does devolve into but that. But not, not in the way we're used to seeing. No. It probably doesn't. I I don't know. At the end of that, when I was watching those three characters who I felt overall, the movie was putting the entire emotional weight of the movie on them. And I didn't think it was earned. I think those characters disappear for too long of stretches of that movie to then have it come back to them at the very end. And I, I said kind of, you know, snarkily who cares but what i mean is what are the ramifications really post revelation how will the world have really changed from people viewing video of these acts my sense watching the film and watching it in that moment was not much or not probably what Shyamalan wants us to leave the theater thinking it will be it just doesn't have that kind of impact i mean you even said it it's the same sort of message as the x-men and a lot of other movies it's you know what you're the real superheroes i mean it's no it's it's absurd i think he's setting up his own post x-men post avengers world where okay people know that there's something called the hulk now what does that mean for us Mm. i mean it's it's just looking at something familiar from decades of comic books from a slightly different skewed angle that that brought enough freshness to it for me. All right, we will stop there. Again, that's Glass. 
look forward to your thoughts. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Our 9 from 99 series kicks off when we come back with more Shyamalan as we revisit his breakout film, The Sixth Sense, plus results of the listener poll asking you about your favorite film from 1999. Stay with us. That's from the trailer for Velvet Buzzsaw, which debuts on Netflix this weekend. It's the latest from Dan Gilroy, the writer-director of 2017's Roman J. Israel, starring Denzel Washington, and 2014's Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, I think... We both felt it was one of the better films of 2014, right, Josh? Oh, we both loved it. Maybe Hall's best performance? Yes. It's a good one. It is a good one for sure. Buzzsaw takes place in the L.A. art scene. Hall in that ensemble, along with Rene Russo, who you heard in that clip, Tony Collette, and John Malkovich. We will have a review of Velvet Buzzsaw on next week's show. We're also planning to discuss the Lego Movie 2, and I think if we're being totally honest, we... We're probably thinking we might skip this, despite both appreciating, you very much appreciating. Was it your favorite number film one, of the year? Number one film. Yeah, the Lego movie, your favorite film of the year. And yet, for some reason, you didn't really want to talk about the Lego movie, too. I, you know, it's one of these, when why mess with perfection, Adam? Okay. You know? <laughs> I can't argue with that. But we've heard a few good things about this movie. Some critics we respect saying very positive things, and we'll have a chance to see it. So why not discuss it on next week's show? Coming up soon on Film Spotting, not next week, but pretty soon, we are going to launch a new Film Spotting marathon. This is where we come to terms with a shared cinema blind spot, and we watch four to six movies from an overlooked director or genre or region of the world. Whatever marathon topic we land on, Josh, if my math is correct, this will be our 37th marathon. Now, for you, only maybe about your... Ninth or tenth, but overall thirty-seven. No way, but I've loved each one of them. Our last one was Vincent Minnelli. That was fantastic. And before that, listen to this, Ron. We spent a little bit of time with new Argentine cinema. Then before that, we did Agnes Varda, Luis Buñuel, contemporary Nordic cinema, and Elaine May. Yeah, the great Elaine May. I think the one before that was Satyajit Ray. That's true. So you get an idea of the sort of filmmakers we're encountering with these Mm -hmm. marathons. We have. Three really good options. In fact, we think this time they're so good that we can't decide. We are going to rely on you, the film spotting listener. You have heard a couple of these names before in previous marathon talk. In fact, if you've been a longtime listener of the show, you have heard that we were going to do a marathon about one of these filmmakers for about the last 11 years. You can make it happen depending on how the votes go. This is why we're throwing it out to the listeners. So when Cassavetes isn't picked, We could blame them. That's true. You didn't vote for it. No. We were ready. (laughs) John Cassavetes is one of the options right now. Even though we haven't finalized the exact roster of films, it would include, at minimum, Faces, A Woman Under the Influence, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and Opening Night. A couple great performances from Jenna Rollins there in A Woman Under the Influence and Opening Night, I'm thinking of in particular. We also are considering 
a Hal Ashby marathon. And you may recall, we even posted a poll question a while back involving Ashby. We were thinking about how his career was being looked at a little closer with a documentary about him called Hal that came out last year and how he overlapped with Paul Schrader having this renaissance surrounding First Reformed. And there were some Schrader movies we hadn't seen. We realized that to do it right, it's Ashby and his films that really would make the better marathon. So the titles we would probably include would be all of his post-Herald and Mod 70s work. The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, Coming Home, and Being There starring Peter Sellers. The Last Detail is the only one of those films I have seen. Great film. I really am eager to revisit it. That's why it's part of this marathon lineup. But Being There, honestly, is in the top five or ten at this point, Josh, of movies I'm most embarrassed to admit I haven't seen. And Harold and Maude, the only Ashby I have seen. Yeah. So clearly a blind spot for me. For our third option, we've been toying for a little while now. What if we did something different with a marathon and focused on a classic Hollywood actress's body of work rather than a director? And so we've been tossing around a bunch of names. We thought, why not ask Mariah E. Gates? She was on the show two years ago mm-hmm. or so. She runs social media for TCM, a critic who, who really knows her stuff when it comes to classic Hollywood. And she said, if you're going to do this, you should really do Marlena Dietrich. So she's the third option. What we're considering are at least three of her movies from the thirties with director Joseph von Sternberg. So the blue angel Shanghai express and the devil is a woman. And then we'd probably throw in one for sure, maybe two other titles beyond that and jump back to the thirties for a while. Yeah, definitely. At least four movies would be part of that Dietrich lineup, but those three seem like locks. If you have seen a fair amount of her work, we would love to hear from you. Please go ahead and send along your recommendations, feedback at filmspotting.net. And we said that you get to choose, you do, by going to filmspotting.net slash marathons, or just go to filmspotting.net and click on marathons. The link is right there at the top of the page there. You will see these topics the potential titles, and you will see the poll question where you get to vote. Again, filmspotting.net slash marathons. Also at our website, if you click on events, you can enter to win admit two passes to free advanced screenings here in the Chicago area. And we have one available, Josh, on Tuesday, February 12th, the movie that I first feel like we heard about at least a year and a half ago playing on the festival circuit, finally going to be out in theaters, the latest from Iranian director Asghar Farhadi, who did A Separation and The Salesman and About Ellie. It's called Everybody Knows. It stars Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem. It opens in Chicago on Friday, February 15th. Again, you have a chance to see it before it comes out for free. Just go to filmspotting.net slash events to enter. We've got another thing for you to check out at filmspotting.net. Yes, it's almost that time. Film spotting madness. Christmas time for Adam and Sam. I know that's how they feel about it. We had a long call this past weekend about it. I believe it. The short list for this year's film spotting madness is up on the website. We're going to do the best of the 2000s. This is our March Madness style tourney that is going to start in a couple of weeks. So you still have some time to catch up on any of those 2000s titles that are going to be in the bracket that you've never seen. That way you know how to vote. Of course, you can also try to convince us to include a film that didn't make the shortlist that's on the site now. Yeah, basically over 200 comments already on that letterbox post with people chiming in, making their recommendations. Sam and I have read each and every one of them. We have considered them all. We didn't necessarily agree with your opinions, but we have considered them. And a few movies that came up again and again have been moved up 
the ranking a little bit okay. as far as at least considering to make. Can you give me the final a batch. title or two? I can give you one title All for right. sure because I think this title, based on the overwhelming push for it to be included, I think it's now going to be among the seventy-five or so films that get to be part of the final 64. And that's because we do play-in <laughs> matches so we can cheat and have, what would film spotting be without cheats, right? So at least 75 films are going to be in this final okay. round of 64. One movie that I do think is going to make it, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Oh, I'm, I'm all for that. On the outside looking in, when Sam and I put the list together, but there's been a clamor for it. So I think it's going to be included. And that would actually be a really nice push for me to see that movie again. I've said it before, but... Have only seen it once. Give it a mixed review on the show, but that was one of those mixed reviews where you're talking about it, I think, about a week after seeing it at the Toronto Film Festival at 9.30 at Oh, night. that's rough. It's Especially your fourth for that movie. Film. It's your fourth oh, no. movie of the day. No. It's 9.30, and you go watch that film. There is no way I gave that movie a fair shake. You haven't really even seen no, that movie No, I don't think yet. I've really even seen it. So I'm going to rewatch that one. And of all the films on the short list... I think there were 83 films on the short list, which means we just threw in some other titles that you never know. Maybe long shots, but could be considered. Why not include them so people can do their homework? I've only not seen one of them. And I think, Josh, you're in the same boat. I think it's the same film. Our bit of homework for Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 2000s, is Edward Yang's Yee Yee. Yeah, which actually I'll take that homework. Which actually is enough impetus for me to even embark on Film Spotting Madness, just finally forcing myself to see that film that I've always really wanted to see Sam Van Hallgren film spotting producer and co-conspirator in the film spotting madness. He adores that film. So can't wait to see that. We hope you will participate in all the madness. The easiest way to kind of see where we stand and to see what homework you have to do is to go to filmspotting.net. There is a madness link right there at the top of the page. And one final bit of website news. If you go to our episodes page. That's where you can subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter. New issues come out every Monday. You can get some behind the scenes conversations, late breaking schedule changes, random musings from Sam Van Halgren. Mostly people seem to enjoy the newsletter. If you haven't signed up yet, again, filmspotting.net, click on episodes. Also in the newsletter, that's where you'll get the first crack at the new film spotting polls like this one that went out on Monday. What is the best film of 1999? So this is part of our 20th anniversary conversation about the 1999 movie year. Here are the options we gave you to choose from for the best film of 99. Spike Jones's being John Malkovich, Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, David Fincher's Fight Club, The Wachowski's The Matrix, PTA's Magnolia, Pixar's Toy Story 2, and yes, the other option because there are so many other options. Yeah, this is one where you might be inclined to go with your gut, but really maybe Google Best Films of 99 before you vote because there are a lot of candidates. In early voting, one film is, not surprisingly, Kung Fuing itself away from the pack that is the matrix but there is a lot of love for all of those films and for other the six movies that are mentioned there by title those are six of the nine films that are going to be part of our nine from 99 series we didn't leave out the movie that's kicking off our series the sixth sense here in a moment but do you have a vote right now that you feel strong about do you look back at your films in 99 and feel like yep absolutely that list wouldn't change or are you looking to maybe kind of reconfigure your list after 
doing this series. Yeah, I've got a weird top 10 from 99 as much as what? in the moment. Yeah, shocking, right? But even in the moment, I, I remember, you know, as, as most people did, recognizing this was an amazing year for film. So it was really tough to narrow it down to just 10. But my number one was, I'd have to vote other in this poll. And I think I would stick with that. My number one was the Blair Witch Project, which I've revisited a handful of times over the years, including, I think, within the last year and a half, and think it absolutely holds up. So yeah, for me, I'd go other. Okay. Blair Witch is going to be part of our nine from 99 series. We will discuss that movie later this year. I did my top five films of 99, not in 99, but in 2009 on the 10th anniversary of that great year. And at that time, I mean, I like my list a lot. I had American movie at number five, the Chris Smith movie. I had being John Malkovich at four, the matrix three, my bizarre out of left field choice at number two, Tim Robbins cradle will rock. Obviously love that film way more than most people do. And my number one is Three Kings. And that just missed our cut for the 9 from 99 series. I think it would probably still be in my top 10 of that year without revisiting it or other movies. I do feel like there's some wiggle room there at number one. I think Three Kings is waiting to be pushed out by something else. Yeah, that sounds right, though. I really liked Three Kings as well. So it, I, I kind of like that out of left field choice for number one. I don't know if you'd do it again, though. No, maybe not. You can vote now in our Best of 99 poll at filmspotting.net. It's right there on the homepage. So far, The Sixth Sense has gotten a handful of write-in votes in the other category. Our revisit of the film, the first installment in our 9 from 99 series, is up next. Stay with us. Nous sommes de Sergivet, nés sous le signe des Gémeaux. Mi fa sol a mi ré, ré mi fa sol 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 ré do. Toutes deux demoiselles, ayant une amant très tôt. Mi fa sol a mi ré, ré mi fa sol 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 ré do. Nous fûmes toutes deux élevées par maman, qui pour nous se priva travailla vaillamment. Elle voulait de nous faire des érudites Et pour cela vendit toute sa vie des frites Nous sommes toutes données de père inconnu Cela ne se voit pas mais quand nous sommes nus Nous avons toutes deux entre des races et fous Là un grain de beauté qu'il avait sur la joue Nous sommes de sœurs jumelles nés sous le signe des gémeaux I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see dead people. In your dreams? While you're awake? Dead people like in graves and coffins. Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. And Haley Joel Osment, we all know oh, your secret see. now. We've known it for quite some time. As a matter of fact, it was interesting watching Adam the Sixth Sense again with the family because two people in the room didn't know the secret at all. They didn't know his and they didn't know Malcolm. So that was a lot of fun to watch it with our kids. But The Sixth Sense originally came out on August 6, 1999. So towards the end of the year, the box office was 293 million domestic, made almost 700 million worldwide. I don't really know what that means in today's terms, but it was a hit. Fair to say it was a hit. It was the number two film of 99 
in domestic box office, as a matter of fact. Nominated for six Oscars in total. Best Picture, Director, Original Screenplay. That's interesting, considering we've talked about maybe that not being a strength of Shyamalan's moving forward from The Sixth Sense. Also nominated for Editing, Best Actor, that was Osmond, and Best Supporting Actress, Tony Collette, got that nomination. Did the Oscars get it right, Adam? When we look back at this film 20 years later, did it deserve to be this honor? Did it deserve to be this much of a hit? Or did it reveal some cracks in the Shyamalanaverse or whatever we're calling it? (laughs) Well, there's definitely some clunkiness here, and we may get to some of that, though not nearly as much as I experienced with Glass. And it's funny, Josh, because I watched it with my two oldest kids, Holden and Sophie, and they also didn't know the twist. If you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, we're going to spoil it. We're we're not going to be sacred about this here. But they didn't know, and I actually thought just based on memes yes, and how dominant that really meme culture me. is that they would probably know. Turns out they were very familiar with the icy dead people moment, but they didn't know otherwise the reveal about Bruce Willis's yeah, character. Okay. So it was kind of the perfect experience for me. I would like them ultimately to probably watch all of the films from 1999 that are going to be part of this series. I'm not sure that's going to play out. I'm not sure I need to watch Eyes Wide Shut, for example, with my 16 and 14 <laughs> The titles were going through my head. I was like, right. <laughs> But I was really confident that they'd be into this film. It's obviously a crowd pleaser. I felt like they needed to be aware of this movie beyond just that meme. And when it got to the end, I feel like they had the two possible reactions that everyone really has or had with this movie immediately when the reveal starts when we start getting the flashbacks to certain Mm -hmm. moments from earlier in the film that reveal this truth about willis's character sophie right away just exclaims i knew it and of course she didn't really know it but there were these you don't you don't want to be had no right there were these doubts that were probably there somewhere there was a moment where she thought something was up and then that just confirmed it and she felt like she was ahead of it even though i know she wasn't On the flip side, you had Holden, who even as Sophie was saying, I knew it. Holden's going, what are you talking about? What's happening? (laughs) He he was totally taken aback by it. That's so funny. He needed at least another 30 seconds or a minute of that to play out to fully grasp. It stunned him that much. And they both had a great time with the film. That worked out. In terms of how it was revered then and how we look at it now, I'm not going to go back and relitigate the Oscars or consider what it may or may not have been up against, but I don't have a problem really with any of those categories, not even best original screenplay. There's a lot of the writing here. I like, I definitely love Osmond's performance and Tony Collette's performance. Oh my goodness. I had forgotten that she got best supporting actress, but what she does with not a whole lot in terms of actual screen time is pretty amazing. You talk about making every second you have on screen. Yeah worth it for and sure work for the, your character for the entire film i mean she this revisit i'm tempted to say she's the best thing about the yeah, movie she and, have I, been. and i liked i yeah, liked it overall i really liked it too and before i kind of dive into why or kind of the revelation i may have had watching it i'll just say i was definitely skeptical this time josh i was thinking about movies with these types of concepts whether they're supernatural horror or sci-fi or fantasy or whatever the structure the world building of the rules I think that all matters more, not less. You don't get to take shortcuts just because this isn't, quote unquote, everyday reality. And part of what was so thrilling about The Sixth Sense was the sense originally that it was so well crafted, like all of the pieces just perfectly fit together. And Shyamalan was this master kind of conductor. And here I really wanted him to prove it to me because I haven't seen this movie since I saw it in 99. And there are a number of potential inconsistencies or holes we could parse 
But the biggest question mark for me was how well that central conceit still works. How much of it is truly inventive storytelling? How much of it is a clever, but ultimately kind of cheap parlor trick? I'll give you my answer, but where did you come out? Did you go in with that same kind of skepticism? I was a little worried uh, because as much as I've stuck with him and his films longer than most people, I certainly recognize the diminishing returns. Um, and I thought, oh boy, it was this just a case of me being so wowed by the originality in that instance of this twist that um, I was blindsided and didn't really recognize obvious faults. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned in our glass review, I think it's absolutely stands up in terms of the twist because it doesn't need the twist. I still think this is a really affecting, unsettling, creepy ghost story about this kid suffering from something particular that has, we'll go back to that word, very human repercussions for him and for his mother and for this psychologist who we think is just on the surface treating him and has, has had his own past trauma. So you take away the fact that Bruce Willis is dead. This is still a really really strong film. Now you add that. It just ends on a more conventionally high note. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and you add that and and suddenly you feel like you've been played with in a way that you have to appreciate um, when you start putting the clues together. I think it does just about a hundred percent click into place. We can quibble if you want, you mm -hmm. know, that I'm sure there are things here or there. Um, but yeah, for me, it absolutely held up in those terms. I did see some of the maybe humor elements where you're like, okay, this isn't a strong suit. When, when he's going for a, when he has the post-it note on the page that says funny, mm -hmm. you know it. Okay. Now when a performer finds a funny moment or when a bigger idea he's playing with is funny on its own end, yeah. I think his films well, can be humorous. And I think Willis gives us some of those moments. Willis does. Yeah. But there are other ones and I, I can't think of a specific one. Maybe we'll get into it. But when you see he's, he's going for a light moment here, that doesn't always work. So Maybe I liked it a little bit less. Uh, interestingly, I didn't have it on my top 10 of 99 that year. I think that speaks more, as we've said, to the strength of the year. But I do have it at number eight on my top 10 horror films of all time list. And I, after this revisit, would keep it there. Hmm. So I was thinking about a conversation I had with another critic one time who hated the movie The Usual Suspects. Maybe the other big tentpole twist movie, maybe yeah. ever, certainly from the 90s. I think it came out in 95. And this is my translation 20 years later of that conversation. But his argument was basically, well, Christopher McQuarrie there is saying, hey, look at how I tricked you. You didn't see that coming at all. I got you. And the answer is, well, no, I didn't see that coming, but you were in control of everything. You were dictating what I could and couldn't see. So congrats, you fooled me. But what really was the alternative? That was the only way it could go. You were holding all the cards. And my counter then and now is, well, that might all be true, but at least Macquarie isn't hiding the fact that the story is being filtered through a character, a character in that case, who has an incentive to tell the person he's speaking to exactly what he wants to hear, the story that's the easiest to believe. So we may not know how unreliable that narrator is, but it is a story being filtered through a different perspective. In The Sixth Sense, we do see a fair amount from Malcolm's point of view, but he's definitely not telling the story. There's only one perspective, and that's Shyamalan's perspective. So before it even started, I was thinking about Willis sitting with Tony Collette, waiting for Cole, Haley Joel Osment, to come home in an early scene. And, okay, we don't see them speak to each other, but you have to assume they were talking to each other or that a normal scenario between a doctor and a mother would involve that. But did he just sit there opposite her with no interaction the whole time? Who opened the door to the house? 
How did he even get in the house? She never called him. So you're thinking it never occurred to Malcolm that something was off in any of these day-to-day encounters. It's really easy to go down that path with this movie. And that's where my head was at before it even started. And then you start watching and you start thinking, how does he get Cole's case in the first place? How does he get his name and all of that information about him and know where he lives? And how does he show up at school when Cole gets in trouble? No one called him. He doesn't try to engage with anyone in the room. And I'm not going to sit here and nitpick that because the movie's answer is the dead only see what they want to see. Yeah, they, Shyamalan That's writes himself an out. He writes himself an out. Yeah. And he's hanging a lot on that explanation, maybe too much. In fact, I was prepared to dismiss all of it. But what turned me, I have to say, Josh, was recognizing that, yes, it is a bit of a parlor trick, but similar to Macquarie with Usual Suspects, he's not really hiding the fact at all that he's playing the role of magician. He basically begs you to figure it out, to figure the twist out from the outset. How about the fact, never noticed this before, but very clear on second viewing, that Bruce Willis only ever wears the same clothes he was wearing the night. That the bee he picked up on that right away. And then, yeah, it's that obvious was, the second yep, time, yeah. not the first time. How about that close-up tracking shot on Willis's face that gets closer and closer as more is revealed in that famous I see dead people scene. It's the moment where Shyamalan's line is there in the mouth of Haley Joel Osment saying they don't know they're dead. And the camera cuts back to Willis with this face and it just keeps getting closer and closer. It implicates him in a way that I don't think just traditional shot reverse shot would. And as I was sitting there with my kids on the couch next to me, I thought there's no way they're not going to figure this out. This moment gives the whole thing away. Still, we didn't catch on. How about the fact that, yes, as I suggested, not just once, but again and again and again and again, he never talks to anybody in the movie except Cole. His wife doesn't even look at him. And then, But the misdirection in those scenes is so good. And it goes back to what I was talking about in Glass. When she looks up. It's evident, though. When she's at the restaurant. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but it's like just to that moment when you think, I see what's going on here. Then he has her, Olivia Williams, Reach for the bill. And not only that, but look up at the direction of the waiter Mm -hmm. as someone normally would if they were sitting alone, but also exactly where his face is. And so it's not only that he's setting up the scene to trick you, he gives you those clues you're talking about and then a third trick. There is a little bit of a trick there. You're right. But there's also a scene where Willis forgot about this completely, where Willis's character tries to pull off a magic trick with the penny. He tries to Mm -hmm. fool Cole. And... It's not magic, of course, at all. And Cole calls him out on it. He was paying attention to what he was doing. And he says, you just never took the penny out of your left hand. And I really do think in that moment, it's Shyamalan saying, you know what? I'm never going to take the penny out of my hand. I'm going to show it to you the entire time. And yet somehow you're going to fall for the illusion. And what I like about that, Josh, what really made me respond to it this time isn't just that I think it's clever or that he's so brazen about it that he he puts it out there for us to consider and kind of in sneaky ways undercuts it. It really is the implication of it. In movies, we do see what we want to see. Characters in movies see what they want to see. We as viewers see what we want to see. But we also do that in life every single day, no matter how obvious the truth might be. No different than Shyamalan's ghosts. We are all guilty all the time of seeing what we want to see. And that denial of one's identity, 
and acceptance of a certain reality around them, that's all over almost every frame of this movie. Think about all the references to watching and seeing that happen in this movie. The statues' faces we cut to multiple times in this mm-hmm. film, kind of looking down on the characters. Cole, in that first scene where we meet him, putting his father's glasses on, even though they don't have lenses in them. All those exchanges between Cole and his mother, where he says to her, what are you thinking? And she says, look at my face. Look at my face. Would I be thinking that? Well, we as viewers know, yeah, you are thinking that, but you're doing your best to put on the face that your son wants to see. I won't get in too much to the awful moment with the VHS tape that comes up in the movie. The most clunky scene in this film by far. Maybe we will talk about it, but another mode of seeing. And then how about the the pictures that Cole draws? He has that conversation with Malcolm where he talks about how he draws these visions that reflect a certain fantasy that aren't at all what he wants to draw, but they know they're what the school and what his mom want to believe. So he gives it to them. And I think that the emotional payoff of the movie isn't that all the mysteries are solved, that there's this amazing twist. It's that Cole and his mom and Malcolm are all finally honest with themselves and they're honest with each other. Being able to reveal your true self rather than having to suppress it or hide it or deny it is what this film is really about, which is, of course, oddly what connects it back to the East Rail trilogy. I didn't think of this movie as a pair or as a set with those films, but it absolutely is because he's doing a lot of the same things. And you said it didn't need the twist. You're right. In a lot of ways, maybe it didn't because it'd be a satisfying film even without that ending. But I think it needs it only in the sense that it's another example of convergence where someone has to confront the truth about something and a reality about something that's been staring them in the face the entire time. And it's actually then an even happier ending, if you will, because there's that recognition. Well, the twist does add, and this is related to that out that he gave himself that you're talking about. They see what they want to see. It's not just an out so he can trick us. It's also related to Malcolm's motivation. This is why he's found Cole because it's through him. And he mentioned something like the, the ghost wants something from yes. me. So this is why he just shows up at school, right? He, yeah. he may not know why, but it's because he's drawn. He knows this kid is going to help him in some way. And so that would be lost if you didn't have that twist. So in, in that way, it it does enhance the movie as well. It's interesting. Tony Collette's character, you know, the mom is probably the most honest with herself and everyone right from the start. And I think that's what's so great about this character. She's not trying to hide the troubles they're having in their house. Uh, she She's not trying to just push it away or not. Adjust. She confronts it. I disagree it. with you, Josh. Okay. I see where you're coming from, but think about, for example, I think this is, this is there for a reason. You think she knows what's going on? Well, I don't know. She doesn't know because she doesn't understand, but I think she wants to believe that everything's okay. And I get that sense because even a minor case, but that moment where she is looking at all the pictures on the wall and she notices something is odd that reflection yeah, yeah. that little light and you know what she sees it it's bizarre it would give anyone pause but then she just goes along with her life how Ooh, about the birthday party i don't no, know that, about that's that. maybe not as good one but listen josh it's staring her in the face she chooses not to think too hard about it she goes to the party where all hell breaks loose with yeah. the balloon right and that conversation that she has with the mom oh you listen to the things she's saying and it's like oh he doesn't usually get invited to parties she wants so badly to believe 
that they've turned a corner, that he's going to be a normal kid. And she's constantly confronted with the reality that that's not the case. But she wants to believe it. I feel like she's desperately clinging no, that, to the idea that everything will be okay. The way I read it is that she's man. Those are all ways of trying to manage the situation, but not deny what's going on. She, she's very confrontational. And as a matter of fact, the birthday party is followed up by the phone call she makes just like if she was trying to like just tamp things down and not make trouble she wouldn't make that phone call I think and that's ream out though. the other she parents she really doesn't have any sense at all though what's happening with her son and there's a well, reason absolutely. why he, he won't reveal the truth to her because yes. he feels like that's going to affect their relationship and that might be but that's because then he senses that she just wants everything to be okay no, I so didn't get that all, read on her character all he at does, all but all he does he says it verbatim all he well, does of though of course he's worried about it yes but think about that but that, that doesn't that mean she's that not Relationship with her, and as all fact, he does the, is try to keep things on an even keel. The scene, her. yeah, Cole does for sure because he's because that's what she leveled wants. in a way. He's also trying to deceive in a way, not seeing what's in right. front of him. But every parent would want that. Ultimately, well, they want to believe what she wants. Fine but she's, I mean, we're arguing over something that really doesn't matter in the scheme of things. The the, the point I'm trying to make is that Colette's performance is so captures a parent overwhelmed, harried by this situation. I feel like she's being more forthright about its awfulness than you are. Maybe we differ on that, but I do love there. There's even the scene where she talks to him about how was your day and they make up better days for themselves, mm -hmm. which you probably see as denial, no. but I see as no. a way of acknowledging we're really, we've got, she has a conversation with him later. No. Like this family's messed up. She's Cole. looking for like a this, way to get out. Doesn't of she say something like that to Abs him? Like Absolutely. we're not doing so We are well. getting lost in semantics a little bit because really what I'm trying to get at is that there's a reason why the emotional payoff of this film is that incredible scene in the car. Oh, she's great them. there. She is of course great. There, yes. But it's everything I'm saying as far as them finally as a pair confronting the truth of their situation. When Cole can finally say to her, I'm of ready to tell you the truth. Of course. Now. And she's ready to That's listen. That's why it's emotional. Exactly. And that she finally then is able, she's in yeah, a place only, where he can say it to her and she can she can accept it as true. Now, the only distinction I would make is she was ready to accept it in scene one. I see her as that sort of parent. But he wasn't that's willing how to she, give it to her. Well, though, that's him. We're talking about her. But that he's we don't feeding need, off of It doesn't of matter. We're going to the same place. Josh, we don't feeding have off to, of environment. We don't have to argue about this. I'd rather talk about the fact that her pain is so real that what it does is it amplifies this kid's bravery because we feel how rawly she is feeling everything that's happening to this kid. We realize the choices he's making are, are not just to try to cope with this. They're actually brave, especially once he makes the leap to start confronting these ghosts. I mean, the movie makes a very mm -hmm. significant turn there and the, the sequence where they drive past on the bus, the graveyard, and he kind of ducks mm -hmm. down and you realize that this is a kid who is, he, he's becoming a superhero in his own way of this kid who's going to talk to ghosts. This is his gift. It's also his burden. Um, it's his suffering, but he's going to turn it into to something good. And I love that twist there. And I think having Colette be on the other side of that and letting us really see the pain, the burden the mother is carrying helps echo his bravery in a lot of ways. And yeah, that, that car scene is just... Um, it hits you with a wallop. It mm -hmm. makes you realize that I'd like to revisit signs having watched all the Shyamalan films lately, um, because I really love signs as well, but I don't know if there are any more human characters in any of his films as we get here in the sixth sense. And then maybe you're, it's just the performers, yeah. you know, well, that's a part Willis is a perfect match for he his is, sensibility for this sort of dour. Um, this whole movie has the pace and feel of, of like just a, a 
a shadow that's sort of creeping across the floor. It's just, it gets darker, it gets quieter, things get sadder. And Willis can tap into that vein so well. So he's a perfect match. We've talked about Colette. And then Osmond is, you know, it's, it's what he's doing as an actor Mm -hmm. and it's just finding the right face. I mean, this sort of like crumpled jack-o'-lantern face Mm -hmm. that he has that is so sad and, and, you just want the kid to smile. And how about when yeah. he makes the turn? I think it's when Malcolm calls him. What does he say? He's a um, a cool little kid. Cool, cool little boy. And you just see like he gets this smile. Oh, like, yeah. Maybe I am. And like yeah. that's also an understated emotional moment that I think The Sixth Sense has a number of those that um, his other films maybe don't. Yeah. No, it's all over those performances. And particularly with Osmond, I agree. Even in that scene, everyone thinks about the I see dead people and that line and the whisper. But it's the moments between the lines. It's the way he internalizes what's yeah. being expressed between them that makes that so powerful. And just honestly, the sort of pause he has in every scene his willingness to slow down a scene to be even slower than bruce willis in this film which is the case and just let these moments breathe between them i really think it's an astonishing performance cole i don't see anything Feel it inside, like you're falling down real fast. But you're really just standing still. Do you ever feel the prickly things on the back of your neck? Yes. And the tiny hairs on your arm, you know, when they stand up. Yes. That's them. They get mad. It gets cold. There are some of these Shyamalan isms, though, or awkward, clunky moments. I suppose I could abide the fact that, as I talk about the motif of watching and seeing, that he names him Cole Seer, Cole S E A R, which is straight out of sort of literary analysis 101. I did touch on it earlier, but that entire sequence involving Munchausen by proxy mm, mm-hmm. is really so bad. And and the the awfulness of a moment where the video camera captures a mother <laughs> pouring poison in, not before she comes into the room, but right in front of the camera. So the world ultimately gets to see what she's doing. It's just ridiculous in a movie that, as we've said, otherwise feels so kind of meticulously plotted. Yeah. And somehow he lets that happen. I'm not really sure how. Well, th- so there's two things about th- that sequence. And wh- and we've talked about both of these elements so far in the show. One is that you see the screenplay all over it, right? Everything that happens in that sequence from, as you said, the placement of the video camera, that this girl has this whole ruse set up to capture right. it. Th- that's all you just see the script. So that's one issue. And the other issue is tied to what we were talking about, this this sort of odd attraction to the lurid that doesn't really understand the potency of what you're dealing mm-hmm. with. And th- this is a, a horrible, horrible, and yes, this is a horror movie. So it may sound silly that I, I'm criticizing it for that, but this, this is a horrible thing um, to drop into your film 
as a plot point and and not give it maybe the weight that it really should sure. deserve. I mean, we mentioned watching this with our kids. Th- this was something that it's just kind of like the whole air in the room changes because you're, what is, what is no, this new yeah. horror that yeah. like is coming completely out everything of nowhere? Everything about them going into her bedroom and it just, it makes you feel icky, everything about it. And horror movies are supposed to make you feel icky in the right ways. Does that make sense at sure. all? And this this is like the movie doesn't know what it's playing no, with. No, no. And it, it literalizes something that doesn't need to be that literal. This idea of listening to ghosts and helping them. It doesn't have to be a case where you're like the kids in the van and Scooby-Doo <laughs> who are solving mysteries and you find the evidence, right? Well, That's I not wonder... really what, what it has to be about. And for some reason, he makes it that way. There is something about the Laura that he just dives into there. And it it doesn't. I don't think it serves the film ultimately at all. It is. It is too obvious. But I do wonder if the movie needed at some point an actual conversation with a ghost beyond Malcolm. You know, with with one of these characters who have up to that point been mostly threatening, definitely unsettling, but often you know violent in some cases. Uh, probably the movie did need an instance where he sat down and had. A conversation with a ghost that didn't try to do something to him, but I don't know if this was the way right. to go about it. Yeah, maybe not. I was surprised, just a few random thoughts here. I was surprised at how long we go in this film before seeing dead people. I paid attention to that this time because all everyone knew going in was, I see dead people. That yeah. That's what the movie was about and that this kid's misunderstood. So from very early moments where we're looking through the eyes of Bruce Willis's character, kind of going, what's ultimately wrong with this character? Well, we know something he doesn't. We know a secret that Bruce Willis's character doesn't know. But actually, if you didn't know that, if you didn't know what this film was about, mm-hmm. and you just went in completely blank and watched the film, maybe you could piece it together a little bit. But the movie doesn't give you the reality of Cole's situation until almost an hour into the film. Yeah. We do not see a dead person until an hour into the movie. And actually, I've been thinking about it. I haven't been able to craft a theory. It probably doesn't hold water. But I think there's something about, again, this moment of honesty and acceptance where it isn't until Malcolm's character comes to terms to an extent with Cole's situation and what he's seeing that then we as audience members also get brought in on the secret. We don't see anybody until then, even though there are lots of scenarios right. where he's encountering ghosts. Shyamalan doesn't show well, the us drawers, to them the at kitchen that point. drawers and right. stuff, but he, but we he don't. does show yeah, he them to us later. It. He picks a point later where now we can be in on that secret. I probably got it the first time, but thinking about it 20 years ago, I never really paid attention to that nice little touch of the place. I remember it from the the trailer, they they have that scare moment where the Misha Barton character, the young girl, like comes up to his little tent that's his hideout. Yeah. But it's not just a hideout or a tent. It's it's his recreation of sanctuary. The church. It's the church. Yeah, and of course, yeah, that's why he stole that. Church. I love that little touch. I do love as well, there's supposed to be that crossover and that connection back to that inescapable connection to what started this whole thing, the failure with Donnie Wahlberg's character, who we meet in that opening scene playing Vincent, the young kid that Malcolm failed with now grown up, he really does look like Haley Joel Osment, a young Haley Joel Osment. There's that similarity in terms of their look. And then I'll just finally point out the use of the camera sometimes in subtle ways, but above and beyond just kind of a still shot, the way he uses real time. It happens in that scene in the kitchen where he's with Cole in the room and he goes with 
Tony Collette into the room where the washer and dryer is, and she gets out the clothes and she comes back. That whole thing is predicated on it. It all works because it unfolds in front of us yeah. in real time. Yeah. Without I forget, that is it a single ability, take or it is, is it just, it's a, yeah. It's a yeah. single take that yeah. follows her. Now, of course, it begs the question that I, I just can't help but throw out. When she thinks he wants the Pop-Tarts, is she in denial, Josh, or is she just playing along? So playing along, I mean, she, I thought it was weird that she... No, what I thought was good is that she actually asks him about the right. Pop-Tarts again. Like, do you want them? Like, She's uh, like, do you want consider these or not? I thought that was like a screenplay glitch. Like, don't forget about the Pop-Tarts. <laughs> but no, she she brought it up again. So I was glad for that. You know, the, the trailer was really, going back to your point about um, the ghost not being revealed for so long, trailer was really unfortunate because I did watch this film, as I said, through the eyes of people who knew nothing about it. They didn't even know the dead people thing. They didn't know about the ghosts. And they were locked in, Mm -hmm. you know, like this thing works for an hour before you realize that you're fully in that ghost story. And I think that's something to do with the pacing, the measured tone, the way of ringing of suspense. And of course, you know, the natural uh, affinity you have for this struggling kid and figuring out what's going on with him. But it's, it is too bad. They blew. There's two twists in this film, Mm -hmm. right? And they blew the first one in the trailer. It's true. Now, one other thing I'll throw out just because. We were talking about Glass. It's what started this whole conversation, the most recent Shyamalan film that we've seen. And I tried to make a parallel to that film in terms of some of the same things that are going on with characters in denial, characters having to accept a certain truth about themselves that maybe they've never seen or chosen not to see. This also strikes me a little bit, looking at this film within the context of this other trilogy, as a bit of an origin story. I mean, isn't Cole in his own way by the end of the movie kind of a superhero? He's yeah, someone, that's, that's he's, right? what I was saying. Okay, this he's is imbued his... with a, a certain skill. Yeah, it's also born out of suffering. It is born out of suffering, though different than some of the characters in those other films. The suffering is what seems to give them the gift, whereas he suffers because of his gift, maybe slightly different. But nevertheless, it's that acceptance of who he is, and then we see him at the end of the film actually doing things to help people to save people using that gift, whether it's just that conversation with the woman in the dressing room before he goes out in the scene at the play. Yeah. He's comforting her, whereas before he would be scared and run off. And of course, as we touched on, unfortunate scene, but certainly being almost a superhero going and revealing the truth and saving a girl's life. And that's the only other part of it where I say, okay, nothing about that sequence worked for me with the VHS the Misha Barton, tape and yeah. the Misha Barton character, right. except for the fact that... I do feel like it ties in with the larger, one of the larger themes of the movie, that just as Malcolm is trying to help Cole, and Cole ultimately then in return is helping Malcolm, and everyone's seeing the truth of their lives, it's really not about the Misha Barton character, the young girl, trying to get justice for herself. No, it's the sister. She's trying to save her sister. It's all about her saving the sister, so that does connect to the film overall, even if it's a little clunky, like some M. Night Shyamalan moments are The Sixth Sense is currently streaming on Netflix and it's available on most platforms or at your local library. We would love to hear your thoughts about the movie, especially if you have recently revisited the film. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. The other titles we're going to get to in this nine from 99 series are The Matrix, Phantom Menace, Toy Story 2, The Blair Witch Project, Eyes Wide Shut, Fight Club, Magnolia, and the 2000 Best Picture winner, American Beauty. Do we know, is Matrix up next? Are these in order? Matrix is the next one. 
Can't wait. Yep. More information about this is at filmspotting.net slash nine from 99. Over at filmspotting.net, you can also find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you can vote in the current film spotting poll where we're asking what else? What is the best film of 1999? If you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast. The next picture show is available wherever you listen to podcasts. To order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch, head on over to filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to find Adam and I on social media, we're both on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at film spotting. I'm at Larson on film. And don't forget to subscribe to that weekly film spotting newsletter. You can do that at filmspotting.net slash episodes. Out in wide release this weekend, Miss Bala, an action thriller starring Gina Rodriguez, directed by Catherine Hardwick. In limited release, opening here in Chicago, Jean-Luc Godard has a new one, The Image Book, described as an exploration of the Arab world shot over two years. That is airing at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Next week on the show, we plan to discuss The Lego Movie 2, along with Dan Gilroy's latest, Velvet Buzzsaw. You can prepare for the show by seeing it if you're a Netflix subscriber. It starts this weekend on that platform. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. This is one of those intros that I committed to, and I'm just like, I, I'm, I'm going with this. Okay. I'm, st- I'm going with the way I've decided to start this, even if I don't know how to tie it all together. Okay. Can't wait. I had put too much work into it. <laughs> oh, I had many reviews like that, I think it's where I got to the end was like, this is not working at all, but it's too late. It. It's too late. I had already spent too much on it. <laughs> Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.